The reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The word of the Lord. Today we're going to start a new sermon series that's going to take us through the end of the year. And the series is called Questions God Asks. And in this series, we're going to look at a number of different passages where God asks uh, particular questions. And just that idea alone is kind of a curious idea in and of itself. The fact that God would ask questions. He is the God, after all, that knows all things, is he not? So why then does he ask questions to which he already knows the answers? And the first question we're going to look at in this series is actually the first question in the scriptures. Adam and Eve are hiding after they failed. They ate of the tree, 
And they hear the sound of God coming into the garden, and they hide, and God asks, where are you? And in that question, God is obviously not asking Adam about his geographical location, as though he did not already know. He knows exactly where Adam is. So why does God ask it? But secondly, and more importantly, how do you read that question? When it was read to you, how did you hear it in your mind? What was God's tone in your head? Was he angry? Was he austere and cold? How did you hear that question, where are you? It's important for you to think about that because this story, this question, is how God confronts sinful man for the first time. And so the way that you read that and the way that you hear it and the way that you conceive of God stepping into their sinfulness and their brokenness, it will be the same way that you conceive of how God steps into your sinfulness and your brokenness. So how do you hear the question, where are you? Now, if you're taking notes this morning, you can outline this passage in three headings. The temptation, the result, and the response. Temptation, result, in response. Now, boys and girls, we've had two weeks in a row where I, we have not done a children's lesson, and you may have thought that I've forgotten about you, which I have not. So this morning, as you listen, I want you to listen for two things. The first is I want you to listen for a word that you might not hear very often. It's the word shame. What does that word mean? And how would you describe it? And secondly, I want you to listen for a story involving scissors, scotch tape, and Pastor Zach. So first, the temptation. As we look at the temptation, uh, we're really just going to walk through these verses. And as we do, I want you to think about what is the serpent really tempting Adam and Eve with in this story? Because it's not the fruit. So what is it? Verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now notice that he doesn't just come in and say, Hey guys, doesn't this fruit look really good? No, he's far more subtle than that. He starts off by calling to question God's words. He tests Eve's ability to remember what God had said. He tests how important God's words are to her. Did God really say? How does she respond? Verse 2. And the woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree, or you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did you hear that last part? Neither shall you touch it. Truth is, she doesn't really remember what God actually said. Because he never told them that they couldn't touch the tree. So what's she actually done? Well, she's already made God out to be more strict than he actually is. She's taken God's commands and made them more narrow and more stringent than God ever intended for them to be. I wonder why she'd do that. 
But it's important to note that she does. Why? We make that same mistake all the time. We often make the mistake of making God more strict than he actually is. And we, mis- we make that mistake whenever we start to believe that God cares more about rules more than relationship. And so we start to think of God as a cold schoolmaster that just simply wants proper behavior. Or we think of God always walking around, you know, carrying his checklist as though we're under some constant performance review. It's much harder to trust that God's commands are for our good. It's harder to trust that God's commands are for our protection. And it's much harder to trust that God's commands are so that we might have a right relationship with him and know him and have fellowship with him. And right there, the serpent has him right where he wants him. Because God has already been made out to be something that he is not. God's words have been called into question, and now the serpent calls God's goodness into question. Verses 4 and 5. He says, You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's he doing? The serpent goes right after their misconception of God and presents him as the possibility of being selfish, petty, and vain. Because what's he implying? He's saying, no, you you won't die. God is just telling you that because he knows that if you eat it, you'll be like him. It sounds like maybe God doesn't want good things for you. If God loved you, why wouldn't he want you to have that? Seems to me like he's not telling you the whole truth. Sounds to me like maybe he can't be trusted. And in that, the temptation is complete. Because that's all it took. It says, Eve looked at the fruit, and she saw how it was a delight to the eyes. It looked pleasing, and that it had the ability to make one wise. And she took it, and ate it, and then Adam took it, and he ate it, and they ate it together. But notice in this whole temptation that they never actually really talk about the fruit. In fact, the fruit really only comes into view, it only really comes into focus after they've doubted God's goodness. That's when they begin to notice how good and delightful and satisfying it looks after they've already resolved in their hearts that God isn't to be trusted. Is not the same true of us. Hard moments and hard situations happen. We start to doubt God's goodness. He starts to feel distant and uncaring. And then naturally, our attention shifts. And we begin to notice other things. Certain things start to look pleasing and delightful. We see certain things start to look good and satisfying, and we want to consume it. We want to eat it. We want to drink it, we want to look at it, we want to watch it, we want to possess it, we want to have it. And all the while in the back of our mind we think, you know, I deserve this. It's just this little bitty thing. I deserve a break. It's small, it won't hurt anybody. Only I know this is what will really offer a moment of goodness and a moment of satisfaction. But, just like Adam and Eve In those moments, it's not really about the fruit that you desire and want to consume. 
all of that is just on the surface of what's already taken place in the heart. Because beneath the surface, what really lies at the core of sin is our deeply rooted skepticism of the goodness of God and our contempt for his commands. We don't trust his goodness. We don't trust that his way is better. We don't trust that he wants good things for us. And so we take matters into our own hands. And so what is the serpent really tempting Adam and Eve with here? It's autonomy. He sells them the lie of autonomy. He tempts them with the idea that you can have and possess what is good and pleasing and satisfying, and you don't need God. Why? Because maybe he's not all he's cracked up to be. God is otherwise negotiable. God is otherwise unnecessary. And therein lies the seeds of all the tragedy, heartbreak, and suffering of this world. Is the idea of an existence without God. That's the temptation. So what's the result? We get to verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Sin enters their hearts and it immediately spreads like an infection. Adam and Eve look at each other and for the first time, they feel a deep insecurity. And when it says they knew that they were naked, this is the Bible's way of talking about shame. And what exactly is shame? You know, I, I find it mysterious. Shame is powerful. Shame lies beneath the surface of every human heart. It was the first result of sin. Nobody escapes it. And yet at the same time, it's so prevalent, yet shame can be something that's hard to define. The first result of sin is shame. And what is it? Adam and Eve don't want to be seen in their brokenness and in their vulnerability. They don't want to be seen for what they really are. And it's certainly something that we all experience and feel. Shame is as natural to sinful man as breathing. Shame makes it where we don't want to be seen. Shame's hard to define, but maybe we could kind of feel the seeds of it for a second. So imagine this. Imagine I stopped preaching, and I told everybody in the room to pause, turn, and look right at you. Not to say anything, just to turn and look right at you. To watch you. Not to do anything other than just simply look at you. You'd hear the sound of everybody turning, and you'd see all eyes and all attention on you. Now, I haven't even asked anybody to do that yet, and I already see some heads shaking. Why? Shame. Shame. I don't want to be seen. I don't want you to look at me. Just the idea of doing that makes you feel uncomfortable and exposed. Why? Shame. The first result of sin is shame, which is a deep, deep insecurity that at the core of our very being, you know that something is deeply wrong with you. And we don't want anybody to see it. We don't want it to be exposed. 
It's the part of you that feeds your worry about what people would think of you. It's the part of you that you don't want anybody to view. It's why we control what information people know about us. It's why it's even hard to receive compliments. Why? Because in that we recognize that we have been noticed. We don't want to be seen as we are. And just like Adam and Eve, when we experience shame, we what? We become suspicious of one another. We start to view each other as threats to our security. And so when sin enters the world, what? Shame now becomes the motivating factor in their relationship. Shame now is what motivates their interaction between one another. And we live in that same exact world. And the world we live in is one that only feeds on the shame that sin produces in us. You know, we're born into broken families motivated by shame. We're born into broken relationships, born into broken communities, all governed by shame that only reinforce the message that you are deeply flawed. And it's not just that you've done something wrong, it's that you are wrong. Shame comes in a million different voices. You're not good enough. No one really likes you. You're not pretty. You're not very smart. You're a fraud. You're dirty. You're a bad mom. You're damaged goods. You don't measure up. It's your fault. You're not strong. You don't belong. You're a mistake. You're not worth sticking around for. Shame produces a never-ending list of accusations. And this world will never let you forget the fact that we are broken. It produces a never-ending list of accusations that tell you that you couldn't possibly be loved and accepted if people really knew who and what you are. Now right there, I know some of you already have said in your mind, I don't struggle with shame. It's not something I think about. Well, it may not be something you think about. But what if somebody knew about the way you talk to your spouse? What if somebody knew what you did when you were alone? What if somebody knew about that private addiction? What if somebody knew how you spent your money? Sin produces shame. And when we feel that shame, we do the same thing Adam and Eve do in verse 7. We hide. It says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths hide and cover their shame from one another. Why would they do that? Well, because attached with the feeling of shame is the fear of being rejected, abandoned, mocked, ridiculed. If people really see me and know me for who and what I am. I don't want to be seen. And so they construct fig leaves together. So what are they really doing here? Already, they're trying to deal with the shame they feel in here by constructing something outside here. I don't want you to see in here, I just want you to see this. They hide. You know, I was really young, I was about five or six years old, and I was playing by myself in our basement. We have things called basements in Missouri. And I was by myself, and I was looking through my mom's desk, and I opened it, and light shone out of this drawer as I saw a pair of scissors. Now, I was too young to play with scissors, right? 
So I looked at it, and you'd have thought that I found, you know, Thor's hammer. I just grabbed it and just felt the power surging through my little fingers. And I start looking around for things to cut. So I walk around, and I just, you know, a little snip here, a little snip there. And then I got braver, more courageous, started cutting anything and everything I could find. So I go into the bathroom to look what else for, uh, you know, that I could destroy, and I look in the mirror. And I go, huh. Well, the people at the haircut place don't make it seem that hard. And so I just start grabbing my hair, and I start cutting it. And I'm just watching the hair just sprinkle down into the sink. And then I look up into the mirror, and I just see what I'd done. One half of my head was completely short, and the other half was completely long. I was like, what have I done? I f and so I immediately think, how can I fix this? So I go looking around, and I find in the same drawer scotch tape. <laughs> and so I went and I grabbed a roll of scotch tape, and I cut off a few pieces, and I grabbed the hair, and was just sprinkling it back on with my little sticky, grubby fingers, trying to get it on there, and I put it on there, and I get it just right. Everything's good. And I walk upstairs to kind of see if, it, if everything was okay. And so my dad just looked at me and immediately goes, Z, did you cut your hair? No. What would give you that idea? You know, as the hair is sprinkling down, like tape's falling off, just a trail of it all the way up the stairs. And he goes, Z, did you cut your hair? Yeah. Good fathers see past our fig leaves, and they see us as we are. Even from a young age, we learn to do what our first parents did. We hide. We construct something on the outside to hide how we really feel on the inside. We fail, we struggle, we sin, we feel more shame, and we continue to try to hide. And when we feel the reality of shame, we try to tape together some sort of image so that the world sees that instead of this. And so we tape together an image of being a great, successful parent with perfect kids, of being a great, successful entrepreneur. We play the role of the good girl, the good time guy, the joker, the dependable one, the helper who's always there, never says no. We have it all together. We're trustworthy. We're acceptable. We're whole. But what are we doing? In that, all we're doing is reinforcing the reality of the fall and the lie of autonomy that we can handle our situation on our own. We always construct something on the outside to hide who we are on the inside. I want you to see this out here. I don't want you to see this in here. The result of sin is that we hide from one another, but most tragically is that we also hide from God. And lastly, we have the response. God walks into the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and Eve hear him coming, and they hide among the trees, and then God asks, where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. I heard the sound of you, and I was afraid. So sin has already distorted Adam's view of God so much so that now he views God as something to avoid and something to fear. Which is what? He's now made God into his own image. 
He views God as a threat. He views God as something from which to hide. He views God no differently than he views Eve, something from which he should hide himself. And what do they do? They do everything they can to avoid his gaze and his eyes being upon them. Don't look at me. It was the woman you gave me. Don't look at me. It was the serpent. Don't look at me and see me for what I really am. I don't want to be seen. So back to our question. When God asks, where are you? How do you hear it? What's the tone? How does it sound in your mind? Maybe you can identify with Adam here a little bit because you always hear it as the voice of one that you should fear. You read it and you hear the voice of an accuser, the voice of an abuser, the voice of a bully, the voice of someone that hurts you, that told you that you weren't good enough. You read it and you hear the voice of an angry father coming home, always mad, always upset, always disappointed, always cold, always upset with you. And no matter how hard you try, his affection will always be unwinnable. Why? Because he always focuses on your failures. You would be surprised at how many people conceive of God in that exact way. I hear it all the time. If that's you, then I want you to hear me this morning. That God doesn't exist in this story. At all. Period. Full stop. That God does not exist. That view of God is a distortion. It's not the God we see here in the Bible, and it's certainly not the God we see in the first three chapters of Genesis. How so? Well, walk with me for a second and just consider the goodness, the kindness, grace, and love of God. God creates an entire universe that declares his glory, fills it with life, and then he gift wraps it and gives it to Adam. Then he brings all the animals to him just to see what he would name it and lets him reign and rule over creation. Then he makes for Adam Eve, the best gift of all. He gives him a lover, a helper, a companion, so that he won't be alone. And then he says, make babies, fill the earth, multiply, subdue it, have dominion, the world's your oyster. And then in that creation, God gives his presence day after day, and he walks and talks with them in the garden. He's the God that gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. But you might say, oh yeah, but that was before Adam sinned. What about these punishments in verses 14 to 19? It certainly sounds like God is mad at him. And I'd still say no. These verses are still an expression of God's goodness and his grace. Look at these verses and notice how they're written in the form of poetry for a second. Have you ever wondered why? You know, in Genesis 1, there's another section that's written in the form of poetry. It's a song that celebrates the fact that God made man and woman in his own image, celebrating mankind as his pride and joy and as the pinnacle of all of his creative works. But then we also see that same poetic form here. As God gives the punishment for sin, 
Why? Because it's God singing a dirge. It's a poem of sorrow. It's a song of lament where God is grieving over the fact that his rebellious children have ushered death into this good and perfect world. And cold, distant judges do not write punishments in their verdicts in poetry. Only a father does that. But even then, you might see the content of the punishment and you look at it and you would say, yeah, but what about, what about this pain in childbearing? What about the fact that Eve's desire for her detached husband, who's not there? What about this curse on the ground where it produces thorns and thistles for Adam and wages war against his work? What about all of that? Isn't that an angry God? I'd still say no. On the surface, it may not seem like it, but it is still, again, a measure of God's love and grace. How? Think about this. If Adam and Eve can't even resist the beauty of a piece of fruit to satisfy themselves, then what do you think will happen the first time they see the beauty of their children? What do you think is going to happen in their heart when they see their beauty for the first time, how much they would want to control and consume them to satisfy their desire for love and acceptance and wholeness? Or what about every time they see a beautiful person that looks desirable to the eyes? Or every time they see the beauty of something that they created in their work? In all of this, God is saying, I'm not going to let you live in a world that will allow you to think that your children, a lover, romance, or your work will ever be able to heal your sin and your shame. I'm going to frustrate every pursuit of wholeness apart from me. It's my grace that will not let you think that anything else could satisfy you other than me. And after all of that, what does God do? He takes his children and he clothes them to cover their nakedness. The idea of a cold, malevolent, angry God doesn't exist. It certainly doesn't exist in this story. So what does this question of where are you tell us? It tells us from the very, very beginning, quite simply, that God looks for sinners and invites them to draw near. Because he asks this question not for his sake, but for ours, to draw us out of our hiding, to be honest about who and what we are, and to come to him to find healing and trust in his goodness. It's in this question that God tells to us that I am the God that looks for you. I'm the God that asks, where are you? I've come to you, but will you come to me? Or do you want to continue to hide? And most importantly, God expresses his goodness in verse 15. When he makes a promise that one day the woman would give birth to one that will crush the head of the serpent. It's the first time we hear of a snake boom wow promise. And when Jesus comes along, he asks that same question. The fulfillment of that promise. He comes in to the Garden of Israel looking for the shameful and the sinful, asking the same question. Where are you? I'm here. Will you come to me? But you find Pharisees hiding behind their performance and their self-righteousness. 
you find Zacchaeus hiding in a tree. Jesus looks for the woman that touched his cloak in the crowd, looking for the sick, the lame, the cripple, the shameful, the sinful. But he also comes to another woman, and this woman he finds at a well. But he doesn't find her in the cool of the day with the other woman, because this woman is hiding in the heat of the day so that she's not seen and that she goes unnoticed. And Jesus asks her for a drink of water and starts a conversation with her. And he goes after her. And he says, why don't you have your husband come here? And she goes, I don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, you've actually had five husbands. And the man you live with now isn't your husband. He goes right after the source of sin and shame in her life. And she wants nothing of it. She changes the subject real quick, and she starts hiding behind theology. She goes, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Should we worship on this mountain, or should we worship on that mountain? She's hiding. But Jesus continues to go after her. And at the end of the conversation, he tells her, I am the Messiah. I'm the long-awaited one. I am the promised one. And she leaves, the, she leaves the well and she goes back to the village and she tells everyone, she says, come and listen. Come and see this one who knows and tells me everything I ever did. Could it be possible that this is the Messiah? Could it be? What's she saying? She's saying, could it be that this long-awaited Messiah who sees me in all of my sin and all of my shame would still invite me to know him? That's the invitation to you, Christian. As we consider the type of church that we want to be, might we be a place where sin does not hide? How do we do that? New Testament says very simply, confess your sins one to another. So I leave you with a challenge to answer this invitation to come and see is that you would go to someone, if you find yourself in a situation where you are struggling with sin, Shame, you would tell someone. Tell someone you trust. Tell someone why, so that it doesn't keep you hiding. Let it come into the light. Let it come in and be exposed so that you might begin that process of healing and renewal. Because it's only then when we are willing to confess that we're willing to put down the scotch tape. And in that, whether or not we answer that invitation all comes down to how we hear a very simple question. Where are you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. We ask that you would help us to be a church where sin doesn't hide. Help us to be a place that is about laying hold of your mercy, your grace, and your kindness to us to the one who is ashamed this morning and who struggles with it greatly and feels it very acutely, would you remind them that you are the God that looks for sinners. There's nothing about us that is, goes unnoticed by you. You see us in all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our attempts to hide, and yet you still would crawl on a cross and be crucified for us to heal us 
to renew us, to bring us new life, and to join us and unify us with Christ our Lord. Your grace and mercy are displayed at this table, and I ask that you would open our eyes to see that grace, to taste it, and to, re- and to accept it and hold it dear. Would you meet us at this table this morning, for it is your table. We ask all this in the name of Christ our Lord, and everybody said, Amen.